Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening from. I'm Bill Glaskell of the Volcker Alliance. I'm here today with Susan Wachter from the Penn Institute for Urban Research, and this is Special Briefing. And we have a special program for you today, as every month, on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and the impact on states and municipalities. We have a terrific panel for you today. We'll introduce them for a second, but just first a couple housekeeping details. We took a bunch of questions overnight and on the registration forums. So we have a, a big question list. We won't be taking questions during the program. This is on the record. We have media in attendance. So everybody should be aware of that. And thank you reporters and editors for joining us. With that, we'll go on to the program. Our speakers today are Matt Chase, Executive Director of the National Association of Counties, Tolu Olorunapa from the Washington Post White House team, Torsten Sluck from Apollo Global Management, and Greg Brown, from the University of North Carolina Business School. With that, let me hand the mic over to Susan Wachter, co-director of Penn IUR and my colleague in these programs. Thank you so much, Bill. Welcome everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker is Matt Chase, who is executive director of the National Association of Counties, NACO. Matt is, as executive director does, terrific work, as does this Association of Counties, and in particular has recently produced a report, which is very relevant to our question today, on the economic outlook for counties and, of course, the stresses they're currently under with vaccination on top of all of their other duties in this difficult time. Matt will discuss NACO's analysis of the Biden COVID plan and the implications for counties. Matt, please go ahead. Great. Thank you. Thank you to Susan and Bill and the Volcker Alliance and UPenn's Institute for Urban Research. It's, it's an honor to be here today. I'm going to try and be real brief here and provide kind of three big buckets. The first is the context for America's 3,069 counties. We serve 40,000 elected officials and counties have a workforce of 3.5 million. So over 1% of Americans actually work for county governments. And in the last year, we have faced really unprecedented times. I want to say, though, that even pre-COVID, our counties were operating at maximum capacity. We were seeing the impacts of the decline of the middle class. Our human service caseloads were at record levels with the opioid crisis and many other challenges with mental health and substance abuse. And so even moving into the COVID time period, we were running at full capacity. When we look at the last year, it's really important to look at the five major disruptors that we were facing. We were dealing with COVID, but we were also right in the middle of the civil unrest with criminal justice reform and racism. We were dealing with the economic shocks of COVID, particularly the K-shaped recovery where counties really are an important social safety net. We run a lot of human service programs for uninsured with healthcare, et cetera. And we also administer our nation's elections at the local level, obviously under state guidance, but we have to recruit over 700,000 poll watchers and, and run about 100,000 poll locations. We also had a, a number of natural disasters that impacted our counties. They were dealing with floods, hurricanes, and other storms and other disasters in the middle of all this. So I just ask you to understand kind of the context. Also, our members are under unprecedented personal attacks. I can't tell you how many of our members now have security because of death threats? And I'm not talking about just social media chatter. I'm talking about armed people showing up at houses, following their kids to school, and other personal attacks. We even have one state legislature trying to arrest one of our board of supervisors in Arizona, hold them in contempt for certifying the election, and they want to arrest our county board of supervisors. So these are real world issues that we're trying to deal with as we deal with the largest global health pandemic in over 100 years. So what we're doing is when we look at counties, I'll just provide a real quick snapshot. But 
America's counties own over 900 hospitals, particularly for indigent care or for uninsured. We have over 800 nursing homes and we run jails where we see about 10 million inmates a year. I bring that up because all of those facilities are key COVID hotspots. So we're trying to keep our staff and our residents safe. We also run about 1,900 local public health authorities with very different governance structures, county by county, state by state. And one of the things that the press has covered well is the mental health and substance abuse challenges that this pandemic has brought on along with domestic abuse. And we run about 750 behavioral health authorities. So our frontline workers, whether it's emergency managers, firefighters, sheriffs, 911 operators, and what we call the last of the first responders with our coroners and medical examiners, they're really truly on the front lines of this pandemic. What we're seeing with the vaccination rollout plan with the Biden administration is we're seeing a lot of improvements. We're nowhere near where we want to be, but already in a short time period, the federal government has increased supply of the vaccines with private sector partners, obviously, by about 20%. We have a long way to go. But one of the new developments that's really helping us is the federal government is now giving states a three-week window into their supply. Before, you often didn't know what you had for supply till the truck showed up and you unpacked the carts. So to have a three-week window is helpful. We also are having improved intergovernmental dialogue. NACO actually sponsors a call every Thursday at two o'clock for all county officials with the White House COVID Task Force and some of the leaders on there to talk about what is the outlook for vaccines, what is the data saying, what are the priorities? And a huge focus is how do we integrate data to make it real time? It's important to know that county and city public health authorities are down 25% in our staffing since 2008. We lost 25,000 public health professionals since 2008 as Congress moved funding from general public health to very targeted siloed funding, whether it was for Zika, H1N1, opiate, HIV, et cetera. And really we've starved our general public health system. We have real challenges with IT. We have real challenges with staffing, including data entry and data consistency. And so that is a real focus. Another real focus remains equity, making sure that the most vulnerable populations, whether it's based on race or age, have access to the vaccines. And it's really important just to keep remembering, we have a vaccine in record time. We don't have nearly enough supply. I have one county who told me they can handle 100,000 doses in their freezer capacity, and they have about 500 doses. So we've built the infrastructure to handle the supply once it's there, but we just simply don't have enough supply. Uh, we can get into the county practices in a little bit here, but what we are really struggling with again is supply, and we are seeing improved coordination. There are challenges with the state-by-state -state plans for vaccinations. There's a lot of conflicting guidance. You have some areas like where I sit, in the Washington DC area where you have multiple states plus the District of Columbia and we cross boundaries every day for work and life and how does that play out. So for us, we're really focused on how are we gonna serve the underserved and the most vulnerable. A lot of the RSVP kind of sites rely on broadband and we know we don't have enough access. Counties are setting up call centers. We're building volunteer teams to go knock on doors and help people sign up. We're really focused on getting staff that speak multiple languages, and we're really using community groups the best we can. And we're doing this in a time when our revenues are facing significant, significant cost. So I'll use King County, Washington as a quick example. That's the Seattle metro area. The county is cash flowing about $5 million a month for two mass vaccination sites and 10 mobile teams to go out and help with vaccinations. They're floating about $2 million a month for additional homeless shelters and about $7 million a month for their public health, contact tracing, testing, and other things. These aren't being reimbursed by the federal government right now. These are above and beyond federal aid. And if you know anything about federal reimbursements, FEMA takes literally years for our members to be reimbursed. So King County actually has reached its maximum 
reserve levels. It's dipped into its reserves to cash flow this. And we're pleased that President Biden has proposed an American rescue plan that would help state and local governments with about $350 billion and a record investment to help us get through this. So I look forward to the Q&A. We've got some very talented speakers, so I'll turn it back over and welcome the Q&A. Thank you, Matt. I'm going to turn it back to Bill, who will introduce our next speaker. Thanks, Susan. Before I introduce our next speaker, Tolo Olareva, I want to remind you you're listening to Special Briefing on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and all of our 19 or 20-odd previous special briefings and other webinars are also archived on, on both sites. Please tune in there as well. So Tolu Olorumpa is uh, my former colleague from Bloomberg News when he was covering the State House in Tallahassee and then moved to D.C. There's a lot of talk right now about what the Biden bill will eventually be. Will, will there be bipartisan support or will this be like the Tax Cut and, and Justice Act in 2017 passed entirely by the governing party? So Tolu, tell us what's the latest from the White House as we're, we're all dealing with impeachment uh, trial at the same time. Thank you, Bill. Uh, thanks so much for having me. We have been dealing with impeachment and it, it is almost astonishing that, you know, this huge $1.9 trillion bill from the Biden administration, the American Rescue Plan has kind of been relegated to the back seat this week because all of the focus is on in, impeachment. But this bill is very much in motion. There are still hearings taking place. There's still a plan to move this bill forward relatively quickly. There was uh, some idea that maybe there would be some bipartisan negotiation, some bipartisan buy-in. Biden has said that he wants Republicans to be on board with this plan. It's a, it's a very major and, and significant plan. And we did see Republicans, at least 10 of them, come up with their own idea for what they think is needed in terms of relief and support for vaccinations and, and health care in the middle of this pandemic. And it was a much smaller plan, a little over $600 billion. Democrats, for the most part, said that that bill was not a serious attempt at negotiation. Why don't we shift to Greg Brown from uh, the, the UNC uh, Business School in Chapel Hill. Greg is going to talk about when are we ever going to get back to the office, those of us who work in offices. Then we'll, we'll cycle back to Tolu once we get his audio. Greg? Sure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for the invitation to speak to this group. So our work really is after a, a really simple question. When are people going to start going back to the office in a way that so mostly resembles pre-pandemic work? We know it's not going to exactly, maybe never exactly resemble pre-pandemic work. We were getting this question a lot from various stakeholders. And honestly, we were interested in it for our own purposes. We've got a group of about 50 folks at the Keenan Institute and you know, really wondering, you know, what does is, what is 2021 look like for us? And so we started looking around the public health literature. We couldn't really find much opining on the question of when people were going to go back to the office. So we decided to kind of figure it out for ourselves. We talked with quite a few businesses uh, to try to understand what their plans were and really, I think, you know, what the conditions were that they were looking at. And we came to the conclusion that this notion of herd immunity was really a necessary condition for many of them. It may not be sufficient for all businesses or many individual employees, but it's at least a, a concept that let us kind of frame a timeline for when things might normalize. So before I kind of give you a, a quick overview of the results, I just want to provide some caveats. And the first one is like, we're not public health people or epidemiologists. We're using kind of off the shelf estimates for inputs um, to our analysis from what the real experts on the health side do. Our envelope is, is pretty back of the envelope. There's no kind of groundbreaking methodology here. And that there's really a lot of things to consider. We consider what we think are the most important ones and the ones that can be quantified. But there's certainly sort of off consensus type risks, like a, a strain of the disease that the vaccine doesn't protect against or, you know, people not remaining immune for very long. And also, we did this analysis about a month ago. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of, of indication of what difference I think that makes. So what's the punchline? The punchline is that we think we'll reach something like 70% immunity, which is a, a number commonly cited as is a benchmark for herd immunity. We'll reach that in late May or early June, most likely. We've done a simulation on the inputs for what we think are sort of a, a reasonably wide range of values for the inputs to this model. Kind of 90% confidence interval would be that it's very unlikely we could reach a human immunity threshold before April, and it could stretch out as long as the end of summer or September type area. 
So to just give a feel for what the important inputs are to this model, the first one is what the threshold is for herd immunity, obviously. So we've gone with 70%, but there's not numbers, people disagree on this. It, you know, some people say it could be lower, it could be higher. We consider a range of 60 to 80%. Another one, of course, is the vaccination rate, like how quickly are people getting vaccinated? We've assumed a rate of about a million people a day, and that would be people completing the too short regimen when necessary. The currently approved drugs, of course, require two shots. So 30 million people achieving immunity each month, but a range that's as low as 15 to as high as 45 million. The past infection rate turns out to be an interesting one because we do now have a baseline rate of immunity, getting at the old fashioned way, people unfortunately getting sick. And that's a pretty high number. The official case count is only you know, around 20 million or so, but we think that uh, the actual number is much, much higher as do other people. We, we have our own model for this as well. The number that we use as kind of our best guess is 85 million. So we're close to one in four people having been infected already in this country, but we consider a wide range there as low as 25 million, which is just above the officially reported number of cases and as high as 115 million. Of course, the ongoing infection rate is important too. So people are becoming immune at a a reasonably rapid rate just by contracting the disease. And so we assume a rate of about 6 million people a month there, which is about roughly in line with what the current rate is off its peak a little bit. And then finally, there's this question of prioritization, what we call prioritization, which is that it's likely that some of the people that are getting vaccinated are, are already immune. They've already contracted the disease, either knowingly or or asymptomatically. So, you know, currently there's about a one in four chance that you're vaccinating someone who's already immune. And as infection rates increase, that risk goes up. And so if you think about the possibility that there could be some prioritization there in the sense that probably not through policy, but through self-selection, what is the, the chance that someone who's already immune gets vaccinated? You might think that there's some people that just out of their social duty would say, well, I think I'm immune because I've been sick, so I'm going to put off getting vaccinated. There may be some people who are reluctant to get vaccinated in the first place, and that could be positively correlated with their tendency to get vaccinated at all, right? So you might think that people who don't take the risk seriously or don't believe in the disease or something would avoid vaccination as well. So that could build in some prioritization that would help. So we just kind of crank all of that through a model and you know, sort of see what the the outcomes are. And I think for us, we were interested in which of those factors are really important. The most important one is probably not a surprise to folks. It's what is the vaccination rate? So if we can really do 30 million people a month, that's the first order most important impact. The range there, if we could do as many as 45 million a month, then we might be able to pull things up to April. But if we can only do 15 million a month, then that pushes things back to September. The other two that are quite important are the herd immunity threshold. So if we really need to get to a high level of immunity, then that's going to take longer, obviously. And then the other one that's important is sort of how many people have actually really been infected. And we don't know that answer, but we we have reasonable guesses at it. So what does this mean for when we go back to the office? I, I think what it means is that there is going to be a fairly significant decline in the number of new cases sometime, call it late spring or summer. And as those infection rates go down, I think people are going to feel much more comfortable about going back to the office because they have been immunized. They don't perceive the risk as being particularly large. And businesses are going to feel comfortable gently controlling, compelling. We'll we'll see what happens, but encouraging in one way or another people to return to the office. And we know that you know a lot of businesses do want to have people return to the office, maybe not five days a week, but there are clearly benefits in, in many cases and increases in productivity for many jobs that are associated with in-person work. I expect that businesses are going to be careful with it, though, because there's probably some open legal issues around what happens if people come back under what they feel was unsafe conditions. So my expectation is that to the extent possible, businesses are, are going to let individual workers make that decision, but there will be increasing expectation that people consider it. And at some point, probably by the end of the year, we're going to return to something that will probably look like steady state or close to steady state in terms of where the dust settles in terms of how many people are really working at home or how often people are working at home on an ongoing basis. So I, I think with that, I'll wrap up and turn it back over to Bill. 
Well, Matt, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, audience, for your patience. Matt's paper is attached to the conference app. You'll see uh, a little, little indicator there. You can download it there, or you can download it from the archived version on the Folk Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And now we're going to cycle back to Tolu for the rest of the talk. You were just getting to the point where you were saying that this is likely to be a go-it-alone kind of bill, despite President Biden's desire for bipartisanship. So where are we, Tolu? Yes, we are likely to be in a situation where Democrats are united on moving forward with pushing a partisan American rescue plan, using reconciliation, potentially only having the 50 votes and the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris to push through this bill. There was some talk about having bipartisanship, about bringing Republicans along for the negotiation process. But I think at this point, that has not borne very much fruit. And Biden is determined not to repeat what happened in 2009, where there were some negotiations that took place. And the Obama administration essentially tried to get Republicans on board, tried to see whether or not they could get a bipartisan rescue bill to rescue the economy, and ended up pushing a much smaller package than many economists thought was needed to bring about an economic recovery. So with that memory fresh in the mind of Biden and many Democrats, especially the memory of what happened in 2010, where there was a Republican wave, essentially, we do appear to be on track for a reconciliation bill, uh, $1.9 trillion, in which Democrats are largely united around the idea of spending this money, getting the vaccines out, boosting the economy, helping state and local governments, even though there's a lot of disagreement within the Democratic Party about a number of different issues, there does seem to be unity on this front when it comes to pushing forward Biden's bill, getting as much money into the economy as possible, providing relief checks for you know, middle class Americans, providing additional money for the vaccine with the idea that Democrats essentially realize that what's going to happen in 2022 in the midterm elections is that they're either going to all rise together or they're all going to sink together because they have very slim majorities. Whatever happens with the Biden administration is going to affect the reality on the ground for members of Congress in terms of their elections. And uh, they're putting aside a lot of their disagreements to try to get this bill across the, the finish line as quickly as possible because they know they don't have very much time before voters are going to be weighing in on whether or not they've done a good job on this number one issue, which is facing the country, which is the COVID crisis and the economic fallout from that crisis. There is some political risk for Republicans, and there is still the chance that there could be a bipartisan vote in the end, even if they move forward with reconciliation, because a lot of the things in this package are popular. The package overall, according to polling, is popular with the American people with Democrats and independents and with a large share of Republicans as well. You know, $1,400 checks for middle-class Americans has proved to be a popular thing. People like getting money from the government. That's something that Republicans would be against if they vote against this bill. Money for the vaccine, money for trying to reopen schools. These are also things that would be part of this bill. And there is a, an effort from Democrats to not repeat the mistake of 2009 of passing a major bill and not selling it. So there is going to be significant money behind selling the parts of this package to the public. Well, why don't I turn over to Susan? Susan introduced us to Torsten Stuck. You're keeping the books on all this. So, so Susan, why don't, why don't you uh, do the intro, if you wouldn't mind? Thank you so much, Bill. And thank you to all of our panelists, which, who I think have set up the question for Torsten Slog very well. I'll get to the question in a moment, but let me just say Torsten Slog is a preeminent economist, chief economist now at Apollo Global Management whose updates are invaluable, so get on his mailing list. Torsten, you have the overview that you address on a daily basis. I know he evolves. Today, what we're hearing is a bit of a consensus from our panelists, and it's a pretty optimistic in some ways. One, that May may be the vaccine date at which we do, with vaccination a million a day, get to herd immunity. Two, that the 1.9 billion dollars on its way and surely rather and and it is going to uh, pass as a reconciliation so both the economic recovery and the health recovery may be on its way 
Is this an upside risk that we haven't seen, that we expect the economy to come full blast, coming back sooner than we've anticipated before? What do you see? Absolutely, Susan. And thank you so much uh, for having me today. I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I mean, the way I think about things is uh, to really try to summarize and put together what uh, Matt, Greg, and uh, Tulu here have been saying. Those are the elements that are most important for thinking about the risks to the economic outlook. So I used to work uh, many years ago at the IMF in Washington, D.C., and I also used to work at the OECD in Paris. And the way that you do forecasts is that you try to think about what is your baseline forecast and what are the risks to this forecast. And the things that we have been talking about today are really the three main risks to the forecast at the moment. Namely, number one, how quickly will the virus be behind us? As Greg was talking about, uh, a very important discussion is when we will reach herd immunity, when will people begin to travel on airplanes, when will people again begin to stay at hotels, when will we all again begin to go out and eat at restaurants. The issue in terms of the virus going away is absolutely the number one driver in terms of the upside and downside risk to the outlook overall. The second risk to the outlook is what Tulu mentioned, namely that the potential risk, if you will, upside and downside for another fiscal stimulus. If the fiscal stimulus is quote unquote very big, then that would of course have implications. And if it's not very big, that would also have implications. And the third and final risk that I'll talk about is the upside risk also potentially that during this pandemic, the household sector has saved a lot of money in checking accounts simply because incomes went up simply because people got $1,200 checks from the government in the beginning of the pandemic. You also got more stimulus here, more another $600 to unemployed individuals that continued in December. And now there's more talk about potentially more stimulus coming along. And all that addition to income came along at the same time while consumer spending was falling because we couldn't travel, we couldn't stay at hotels, we couldn't go to restaurants, we couldn't go to sporting events or concerts and do the face-to-face -face consuming that we normally would do in the leisure and hospitality industry that ended up therefore creating quite a significant increase in overall savings from month to month. So those three components turn out to be very important ingredients in how I would look at the outlook from here. So just to give a little bit more detail of those three specific things. On the vaccine data, it is quite noteworthy that in the beginning of January, the daily number of new cases of COVID in the US was around 300,000 at the peak. Now we are below 100,000. So just in the last few weeks, we've seen a very significant improvement in the number of new cases of COVID. This is certainly much better and what I had expected, again, just a few weeks ago and certainly a few months ago. And a lot of this is, of course, driven, as Greg also was talking about, by the fact that today we are now seeing on a seven-day moving average that the number of shots in arms is around 1.6 million. So that means that we're seeing a very significant increase in the number of people who get vaccinated. So those two data points combined that we're seeing a fairly strong decline in the number of new cases and at the same time, we're seeing a fairly steady increase in the number of people who get vaccinated. That means that the chances of GDP growth coming back a bit faster, and therefore for states and local governments, of course, the chances of tax revenue coming back a bit faster is more to the upside at the moment than it has been at least for the last uh, nine, 10 months while we've been through the pandemic. So the first reason why, as you say, Susan, there's some reasons to be optimistic is indeed that the virus data does look better, is indisputable that over the last few weeks, things have improved quite significantly. And the second thing, as Tolu mentioned, one question uh, that uh, came in here before we uh, started the presentations was to ask the question, OK, but how big is the hole in the economy relative to this 1.9 trillion package that's being pushed forward in Congress? And one way to look at that is to look at the Congressional Budget Office has an estimate of what is potential GDP. In other words, what is the level of GDP that we need to get to to get full employment in the economy. And if you take the difference between what is actual GDP and what is the level of potential GDP, meaning where we would like to be, and here I mean in particular for the Federal Reserve, they would like to see full employment and they will continue to have easy policy until we get to full employment. That difference today, according to the CBO estimates, stands, in other words, the size of the hole in the economy stands at around $660 billion. Another way to talk about this more simply is to say that we still 
If you look at employment in January, we are still 10 million jobs lower than where employment was in February of 2020. So we still have a fairly significant hole in the economy that needs to fill up. And in GDP terms, that's about 660 billion. So now you might ask the question, well, if that's hole that we need to fill up is 660 billion, isn't the package that's being pushed through at 1.9 trillion then too big? And this begins to open up conversations about, well, that depends on what exactly the package consists of. Remember that some parts of government spending uh, will go directly into GDP. If we are the government and we build a bridge or a highway, if we go and spend money on something that goes directly into GDP, then the multiplier from that government spending will basically be almost one-to-one. -one. In some cases, it might be even higher than one-to-one -one in terms of lifting GDP. But at the same time, if some of the fiscal package consists of sending checks to individuals of $1,400, then we might begin to have a different conversation about what does that mean for GDP? Because if you send a check of $1,400, dollars to households, then we need to find out how much of that is going to be spent on consumption and how much is going to be saved. And in the extreme case, so this is not likely at all, of course, and that's not what we've seen through the pandemic, but in the extreme case, if the $1,400, all of it is saved, then the multiplier is actually zero. So that means that, yes, we may send a check to households, but if the households end up saving all the money that they get, then we're not going to get any impact on GDP overall. So that's why the economics profession and the CBO, and of course, a lot of people, including in my group, of course, we spend a lot of time thinking about, well, if there's a 1.9 trillion stimulus in terms of more government spending, or in this case, sending out checks and spending on everything from supporting states to, and of course, local government, also to supporting schools, supporting low-income families, supporting people that are unemployed, all things that make sense when you have a pandemic. The question becomes how do you translate that what is the multiplier from that 1.9 trillion into the 660 billion that is actually needed this has opened up this conversation in particular larry summers last week wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal saying the 1.9 trillion no matter what multiplier you assume is simply too big relative to the whole in terms of what is actually needed. That's why some people are now beginning to talk about potentially the economy overheating. The various others, also Oliver Blanchard at the Peterson Institute, has also been talking about the chances of getting some overheating as a result of this package. The skeptics are, of course, saying, well, that might be that we can be, begin to worry a bit about overheating, but we haven't literally seen, and this is true, we have not seen the U.S. economy overheat with a lot of inflation since the 1960s. So let's just give it the benefit of the doubt of trying to do a significant fiscal boost to try to get the economy back on track. So the second bullet point in terms of risk to your question, Susan, to the upside and downside for the outlook is that 1.9 trillion might sound like a lot, but it remains to be seen exactly what the impact will be on GDP. But it is clear that this certainly constitutes an upside risk. And as I mentioned, Larry Summers and others are quite worried. But at this point, we are still sitting today 10 million jobs behind where we were in February of 2020. So that does mean that, uh, yes, let's see the data over the next several months if we do get the 1.9 trillion where things will go. But this is certainly one upside risk also to the outlook from where we're standing at the moment. And finally, the third risk that I mentioned, one way of quantifying the pent-up demand from consumers is to try to look at what has been the excess savings in the household sector. Or a simpler way of saying that is you could go and look at how much money does the household sector have in their checking accounts above and beyond what they would have had if we did not have a pandemic? And that amount, you can calculate it the different angles and different ways, but that amount is roughly $1.5 trillion, which is roughly 10% of annual consumer spending. So in summary, and let me just end up my conclusions by saying, well, to your question, Susan, what are the risks to the outlook and are things looking better or should we worry to the downside? Well, the number one thing is that the COVID data looks better, both on the number of cases, also on number of vaccinations. The big joker in that discussion, of course, is the strains from South Africa, the UK and Brazil. We're watching that very carefully. We're all talking to medical experts that try to inform all of us in terms of how problematic this might be in the second half of this year. But at this point, at least the COVID data is moving in the right direction, which speaks for some upside. On the fiscal front, also some potential upside, but let's wait and see exactly how big the multipliers are. And third and finally, for consumers, there's certainly a lot of firepower on consumer balance sheets. In other words, they have dry powder that could be used. It also remains to be seen exactly how that will be deployed. But the short answer to your question, Susan, is uh, yes, it is indeed the case that things are looking brighter on the macroeconomic outlook that it has done even just a few weeks ago. So with that, let me stop there and uh, turn it back to you.
Thank you, Torsten. That's terrific. And now I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your forecast for income this year for GMP and also for unemployment? What's your forecast and perhaps what's the upside forecast as well? So a lot of those forecasts are struggling with exactly these three risks of trying to quantify how big an impact will we have on GDP, in particular from the fiscal expansion. And of course, the derived economic indicator, as you ask about, is of course, and which is most interesting for the Federal Reserve, and also very interesting if you think about tax revenue for state and local governments, is of course, what is the forecast for the unemployment rate? The Federal Reserve at the moment has the forecast that the unemployment rate by the end of the year will be five and a half. That would also be a reasonable forecast in my view. I think that the upside risk is that the three things that I mentioned, namely if we do have the virus behind us quicker, if we do get more significant impact of the fiscal stimulus, and also if we do see consumption go up more as a result of the dry powder that consumers have on their balance sheets, we could see the unemployment rate go down below five. That uh, would of course be good, but remember that the unemployment rate in February of 2020 was three and a half. So we're not quite back to what the Federal Reserve will worry most about, namely full employment by the end of this year. But Janet Yellen said last week that she thought that if the 1.9 trillion went through, we could reach full employment by 2022. So the outlook for tax revenue for state and local government and also for sales tax and of course also property taxes does look uh, more positive than is done for quite some time. So the short answer to your question is that we are monitoring very carefully these upside risks. And in the last few weeks, the financial markets have spoken also on this issue by trading long rates higher. Long-term interest rates have been going up, which is also telling you that the answer to your question is that financial markets are also gradually becoming more positive on the outlook. And that, of course, does mean that there is a higher chance today that we might get an unemployment rate below 5 by the end of this year than what, again, the consensus and also I would have expected just again a few weeks ago. Thank you again, Torsten. Let me just note for our listeners and for the record that this Federal Reserve prediction of 5.5% and the potential even better outlook is so much better than we were uh, forecasting on this special briefing just several months ago. And the consensus several months ago was no full employment until the end of 2023. And now we're looking for the consensus in 2022 with perhaps some upside that we may see employment drop below 5% that we just heard from Torsten Slog and that that's in the market right now in long-term interest rates. That, of course, poses also questions on inflation risk. I will hold off on those to come back to the focus of this program, which is state and local. And state and local is now in the crux of a very difficult moment where counties are on the front line of pushing out these vaccines and this bottleneck, which is a tremendous burden and a health issue as well. And overcoming this will be critical for these positive outcomes. So let me turn to that question and go to Matt Chase and say, what does the passing of this bill mean for overcoming the bottlenecks that we see going, hindering the move to vaccinate the public quickly? Yeah, and as was earlier discussed, there's 10 million unemployed a million of those are local government workers. So about one out of every 10 jobs that we lost since last March are local government. When we look at the latest jobs report, about 49,000 of the education jobs came back in January, but we lost 13,000 non kind of K through 12 education jobs. So there's still significant pressure on state and local governments, particularly in our case, local governments. It is very uneven. You have some parts of the country, particularly if you're a county based on property tax revenue, you might be a little bit more stable. If you're in a state like New York or Ohio or even California, where the county relies much more on sales tax, then you're probably in a much worse shape. If we can get this package through Congress in the next couple of weeks, we think we will be in much better shape and we'll be able to stabilize. One of the things that we keep reminding both the media and Capitol Hill, is there is this fixation on revenues. What is current revenues versus now versus last year? What we remind people is our caseloads, the demands on our services 
aren't at 2019 levels. The needs of our communities are far outstripping our revenues, whether it's broadband, whether it's vaccinations, PPE. When we did use the, the CARES Act money that was provided last year, our members invested significant money into small businesses, particularly minority women-owned businesses below 50 that did not perform well or have any access to the PPP small business loans. We have a real problem with our homeless populations and those with housing affordability challenges. And we're putting a lot of money into broadband, both for kids, but businesses, and as well as related to vaccines. So what we're saying is we have to deal with the crisis, but we also have to make these investments to make the country far more resilient. We can't just think about going back to pre-COVID. We have to think about how do we make these investments to make much more strategic, resilient decisions for our communities. And if I could just interject for a second, thank you very much, Matt. We'll return to that in a second. I want to remind everybody we're listening to special briefing on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And please come back and listen to the archive versions as well in either place. I want to also make an observation about what both Matt and Torsten said. The Congressional Budget Office has pointed out, Brookings has also pointed out, we've reviewed it on past programs, that there's a pretty strong correlation between changes in unemployment or changes in, in the employment rate and state and local revenue. It comes with a lag. So even if we hit full employment sometime next year, the experience in the last recession was that state revenue, anyhow, was about a year behind the economy. So a lot of these extra costs are going to continue even as revenue catches up eventually, but takes a while to catch up to where it was before. When we were at record, record reserves, we were really flush. I wanted to ask a question about vaccinations, which is both political and operational. We, we got a number of questions from audience members about this, which is the equity question. I know Matt raised it. It's also a, a political question. And so why, why don't we start with Tolu, who I believe is back with us by phone, and turn to Matt as well and open up anybody else who wants to discuss it. You're seeing underserved populations, reluctant populations, Black Americans especially, but also many others who are not getting vaccinated at anywhere near the rates of the white populace. How do we address this politically and also operationally? Yeah, it's a great question. And it is a big challenge for the Biden administration. They have talked about this for several weeks, even before we started to see the numbers about the need for equity. We did see that COVID-19 had a major economic and uh, health impact on minority communities, even proportionally larger than on white communities. And I think that was part of the reason Biden decided to say that he wanted to have equity as part of his response. And he stood up these task forces and they have multiple plans for how to address this. One of the approaches that they have will be going directly to these communities and not only addressing the active issues, which are significant and longstanding and were in place before COVID-19 hit, but also addressing some of the issues when it comes to reluctance, skepticism about vaccines, questions about reliability, questions about safety, and they are using some of the top names, the top resources that they have within the administration and within these communities to try to address some of the issues, address some of the questions that are out there, go directly to people, go directly to some of these community health centers and have validators, have people who can speak to some of that reluctance and directly address some of those issues and make sure that people know that COVID-19 is not an equal opportunity killer. It is a disease that has hit minority communities and poor communities especially hard. And there's an added need for vaccination because of that. And the Biden administration faces a political challenge of doing that because much of its political base is located in some of these communities. And they want to make sure that they are doing all that's necessary to make sure that those voters do not feel left behind, those voters that help Biden get in office feel like they are getting equal access, that they are getting equal treatment, and that they are not getting left behind by this vast vaccination project as of now, 
seems to be disproportionately benefiting certain communities and leaving behind others. So it's a major political challenge, and it is a challenge that Biden and his team are trying to address with a lot of federal resources. And I would expect that to be a big part of any package that moves forward, money for some of these vaccination centers, mobile clinics, mobile access, community sites, directly targeting some of the inequities that we have in our system and inequities when it comes to the vaccination process as well. So, Matt, how are the counties addressing it? You touched on this, but tell us a little more what you're asking for and what you're also doing. I live in a county in New Jersey, Essex County, with a huge minority population and many minorities. And Essex County, just as a shout out, has been one of the absolute standouts in terms of efficiency and outreach. Yeah, and I would just echo what was just said. Let's put the supply issue aside. I think there's three key factors and trust. How do you build trust? And how do you really get in there, have education and awareness, have community leaders that really help us build trust? Two is access. As we move to these mass vaccination sites and using hospitals and others, how do we give people the time off from work? How do we give them the transportation? How do we give them access to the facilities? And then some of these communities lack the resources. I mentioned earlier the staff cuts and the technology challenges, but also cash flow. People focus on some of the federal appropriations just to purchase the shots, the vaccine itself, and the transportation logistics, the storage logistics. But you need a whole secondary support system, whether it's people for transportation, public safety, volunteers to make calls. With our call centers, we are literally having to have somebody take the phone call and then retype everything into a separate computer system. The technology doesn't work. So again, I think the previous speaker said it right, trust, access, and resources. And it is a top priority for our county members. Every county I talk to, this is the top of their list and it's their focus. And we're, again, call centers, volunteer teams, people with multiple languages, using community groups. We're not anywhere near where we need to be. And it is definitely the top focus. Matt, if I may just jump in here to ask follow-up questions related to this. You and also Bill mentioned Essex County as being a standout. It gives me a lot of pleasure. Born there, I love the place. But let me ask you more generally, are there common characteristics of counties that are more effectively, more at the ready perhaps, to deal with the challenges of getting out the vaccine? Yeah, and a lot of it comes down to how the state has set up the guidelines and how they've empowered their local communities. I'll take New York as an example. The state is handling the general public vaccination. The counties are limited to only vaccinating our first responders, our sheriffs, our police, our teachers, our public health professionals. Right now, we're, we've been limited in our ability to get into these underserved communities. And so it's really important to understand what's the authorization that the state has given their local public health authorities. It's not like the county doesn't want to vaccinate some of these parts of their county. They just may be prohibited. And you're seeing a lot of stories of if a county or a local public health authority steps out of its lane, what happens to them? And so it's really complex. What I want to praise the Biden administration for is rebuilding that intergovernmental discussion and partnership between federal, state, and local. The locals now have a much better window into what the federal government is sharing with the states, what guidance is being given to the states, and hopefully this can be improved quickly. Thank you, Matt. Let me just follow up again, if I may, on just that. That's clearly our Achilles heel, that intergovernmental cooperation but, and here's a question we have from one of our listeners, Melissa Glynn, Principal EY. At this stage, is there value in trying to standardize rollout plans across counties, tiers, distribution approaches, supply chain monitoring, and even the programs that we see out there, the platforms of registration? Is it possible to redo these as we, at the same time that we're delivering, or is it too late? I would say it's never too late. We are seeing great collaboration with the private sector. Without naming the specific companies, there's some companies that have come in and really helped counties put together more consistent registration processes across county boundaries. And, you know, I think that's a great question. We just need to keep at it. 
I'm not sure. What we really need is federal, state, local partnership on data quality, data transparency, and how do you rebuild the public trust? I think our country and our society, we are so used to just having everything at our fingertips and we want everything now. People forget that we got a vaccine in record time, that the companies are still producing it. We're still testing it. And we expect yesterday. So what we really need is to build that data, build that transparency so that the public realizes what is really going on. And I think that would really help us go a long way. Thank you, Matt. I'll turn it back to Bill for other questions. And if not, I have many. I want to remind everybody you're listening to special briefing from Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. In addition to Greg Brown's paper, we also have two great white papers from NACO attached to the conference app where you see handouts, and also you can download them on the archived site as well. Just want to turn back to the financial aspect of all this. We have a question from Jason Romeo at the Philly Fed. Can panelists discuss how the levels of reserves, capital markets, aid from the federal government, how has all this played a role in navigating the current budget stresses? Greg mentioned that reimbursements sometimes come years after the fact. I noticed that the governor of Connecticut said he was going to balance the budget, partly using federal funds. So what are you folks seeing in in terms of how states, counties, cities are, are actually applying federal funds right now to address these issues? One, I think the CARES Act in the earlier federal appropriations certainly helped state and local governments, that particularly the $150 billion that was provided in what was called the Coronavirus Relief Fund was really a godsend. It, it helped. Some of our major metropolitan counties, particularly those that like a Clark County, which is Las Vegas, or some of our New York counties, or King County in Seattle, which really was at the forefront of this pandemic, they have had to dip into their reserves at significant rates, and really, they need additional federal assistance. What we have seen as far as local decision-making is our members are trying to hold on to staff as much as possible, and what we have seen is a lot of counties put their capital improvement projects on hold. Some of that is because early on with the public health safety measures, and a lot of it was just the uncertainty of could they pay back their bonds or how is the revenue going to come in? A lot of these capital improvement projects might be tied to specific sales tax or a very specific revenue stream. And what we saw, I mean, counties own a third of all airports in this country, whether it's Miami or Vegas, those are all county owned airports. Our airports were devastated. Some of our transit systems obviously were devastated. And so those particular activities that are tied to a specific revenue stream or a user fee, we really scaled back on our capital improvements. Thank you, Matt, so much. That's a great spot and a great comment. We're not out of the woods. Our local state, specifically counties, which was our topic today, are still under pressure and will be over the longer run, despite some of the positive things we hear. We are coming to the end of the hour. I want to thank the panelists terrific today, and we look forward to having you back at some future date. And now back to Bill to talk about our next program. Absolutely. Indeed. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to Noah and Rittenberg and Nina Campbell running the running the board and dealing with cranky communications today. Thank you, attendees, for joining us. Come back to the Penn IUR and Volcker Alliance websites to download this and other webinars. So with that, thank you to everybody. Stay safe and stay well. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.